Thou hast nor youth nor age, but as it were an after-dinner sleep, dreaming of both. Here I am, an old man in a dry month, being read to by a boy waiting for rain. I was neither at the hot gates, nor fought in the warm rain, nor knee-deep in the salt marsh, heaving a cutlass, bitten by flies, fought. My house is a decayed house, and the Jew squats on the windowsill. The owner, spawned in some estaminet of Antwerp, blistered in Brussels, patched and peeled in London. The goat coughs at night in the field overhead. Rocks, moss, stonecrop, iron, murds. The woman keeps the kitchen, makes tea, sneezes at evening, poking the peevish gutter. I, an old man, a dull head among windy spaces. Signs are taken for wonders. We would see a sign, the word within a word, unable to speak a word, swaddled with darkness, and the juvescence of the year came Christ the tiger. In depraved May, dogwood and chestnut, flowering Judas, to be eaten, to be divided, to be drunk, among whispers by Mr. Silvero with caressing hands at Limoges, who walked all night in the next room, by Hakagawa bowing among the uh, Tidians, by Madame de Torinquist in the dark room, shifting the candles, Fraulein von Krupp, who turned in the hall, one hand on the door, vacant shuttles, weave the wind, I have no ghosts, an old man in a drafty house, under a windy knob. After such knowledge, what forgiveness? Think now. History has many cunning passages, contrived corridors, and issues, deceives with whispering ambitions, guides us by vanities. Think now. She gives when our attention is distracted, and what she gives, gives with such supple confusions that the giving famishes the craving. Gives too late what's not believed in or is still believed, and memory only reconsidered passion. Gives too soon into weak hands what's thought can be dispensed with till the refusal propagates a fear. Think. Neither fear nor courage saves us. Unnatural vices are fathered by our heroism. Virtues are forced upon us by our impudent crimes. These tears are shaken from the wrath-bearing tree. <clears throat> the tiger springs in a new year. Us he devours. Think at last. We have not reached conclusion when I stiffen in a rented house. Think at last, I have not made this show purposelessly, and it is not by any consultation of the backward devils. I would meet you upon this honestly. I that was near your heart was removed therefrom, to lose beauty and terror, terror and inquisition. I have lost my passion, why should I need to keep it? Since what is kept must be adulterated. I have lost my sight, smell, hearing, taste, and touch. How should I use it for your closer contact? These, with a thousand small deliberations, protract the profit of their chilled delirium, excite the membrane when the sense has cooled, with pungent sauces, multiply variety in the wilderness of mirrors. What will the spider do? Suspend its operations? Will the weevil delay? De Balhach, Fresca, Mrs. Camel, whirled beyond the circuit of the shuddering bear, and fractured atoms, gull against the wind in the windy straits of Belle Isle, or running on the horn, white feathers in the snow, the gulf claims, and an old man driven by the trades to a sleepy corner. Tenants of the house, thoughts of a dry brain in a dry season. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to a, another episode of Left Unread. 
I, as always, am your host, Evan, and I'm not joined by my co-host, Cam, today, but rather with Matt from the Ghost Stories for the End of the World podcast, also known as Ghost Stories Matt, or, in certain corners, the Ghost Boy. (laughs) Matt, what's going on, brother? I'm good, man. Um, How are you? Excited. Excited to be here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. uh, I'm happy to finally be doing this episode, and then the Left on Red first, in order to get into a... Angleton mindset. I've got a little uh, drink right here. Good call. What is yep. it? Uh, just a uh, whiskey on the rocks. <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah, yeah. Here at uh, eleven fifty a.m. on a Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> I'm quite hungover today, so I'm just sipping coffee. Ha- oh yeah, it's kind of I Angleton am absolutely mindset. Absolutely hungover though. as well. Yeah. <laughs> what were you saying? Uh, yeah, it's kind of Angleton mindset, though. I guess just being hungover and yeah. Yeah, and then uh, the weeds. Yeah, and then a little hair of the dog that bit you, getting started before noon. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. So uh, anyway, uh, we are here today to talk James Jesus Angleton, old uh, Jimmy Jesus, a uh, well, quite a figure from a uh, mid-century American and uh, geopolitics, I suppose. Uh, somebody that I find many on the left, such as you and I, uh, are strangely drawn to. Yeah. This uh, weird whiskey-soaked, gaunt man, <laughs> uh, hovering in dark uh, dark corners of rooms, frantically searching for bugs in his office to start the day. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, I I feel like a, a lot of people feel the, the call towards Angleton mindset, just trying to figure out what the fuck this guy's deal is. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Yeah, I think there's always something pretty intriguing about a guy who like after he died all they found in his office safe were arrow heads and kennedy autopsy pictures <laughs> yeah and, and they uh, had to get the arrows tested for poison because of his reputation that's pretty yeah cool. yeah and also i mean just some of the shit about the the end of his life i guess we'll talk about that in due time but i mean there's there's one story that i just fucking love after he finally gets canned from the cia He's just, like, wasted in his kitchen, like, by himself because all of his family has left him at this point. Mm -hmm. Just getting absolutely sloshed. And he, somebody, some reporters cold call him. And he was, like, making spaghetti or something at the time. And just ends up shooting the shit with them for an hour. Burns his dinner and then yells at the people that he was talking to at the phone saying that they made him do that. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just, uh, you know, you can can really picture him, you know I mean? Just uh, sitting there in his bathrobe. Uh, three or five martinis deep at this point and just burning the shit out of his food while he uh, mumbles into a telephone at reporters who cold called him. <laughs> um, yeah, I find it incredibly intriguing that that is his favorite poem, um, what you read at the top of the show, just because yeah. it's about, you know, um, getting old and reflecting on history and spiritual decline and... Mm-hmm being haunted really by the past and it's it's just so perfect for him you know that that would be his go-to poem yeah yeah and the poem i read is uh either gerontian or garantian i have no idea how to pronounce it uh by uh, t.s Eliot, who yeah. was uh i believe his favorite poet yeah he was a modernist wasn't he angleton yeah 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 absolutely yeah he was a yeah he, he, he was a strange cat but um <laughs> Yeah, he was really into poetry and, uh, um, you know, literary analysis and somehow found a way to take, or I guess he didn't really find it, but he thought he did, <laughs> use literary analysis to try to analyze counterintelligence work. Yeah. Um, but yeah, again, we'll also get into that in due time. But uh, I suppose um, we should start the story uh, at the beginning. And, uh, you know, so James Jesus Angleton... He was born in Boise, Idaho, and uh, he lived in Dayton, Ohio, and then moved to Milan in Italy. And really, you see uh, this sort of like call to Italy uh, basically shapes a lot of his life, especially his youth. Um, he's stationed there uh, quite often. Um, and now his father, James Hugh Angleton, met his mother, Carmen Moreno Angleton, in Arizona, and uh, uh, James Jesus was their first child. Angleton's middle name, Jesus, was from his mother, but he would shun it later in life. Uh, he was kind of, like, embarrassed of his, uh, I believe, Mexican heritage, uh, sort of, or at least he didn't like to uh, draw attention to it. 
And uh, he and his siblings were largely raised abroad in England and Italy. Uh, growing up, he was noted as being particularly European in his ways, and quite solitary with a love for literature and prose. Uh, James Jesus Ingleton also suffered from tuberculosis in his youth. Uh, and then uh, from his time at Yale, where he, went to, uh, where he went to college, he became mired in the thought process of new criticism, which we will discuss a little bit later. Um, and this would paint his analysis of spycraft. Uh, it was coded language, close control, ambiguity, and textual analysis. So not at all anything like what you should be doing when analyzing uh, spycraft, I suppose. But, you know, textual analysis is an interesting, uh, it's an interesting angle. Uh, he was also a friend of the poet Ezra Pound, and uh, Angleton's father Hugh also got close to the poet. So Hugh was quite the opposite of the lithe and bookish James Jesus. Uh, Hugh was taller and sturdier, while being very outgoing, and also a big fan of Mussolini and uh, mm -hmm. uh, Italian fascism. And uh, yeah, I feel like uh, this uh, this kind of paints a lot of James's life as well. You know, he was uh, very anti New Deal, anti FDR, and uh, also. Uh, harbored some anti-Semitic viewpoints uh, at the start of World War II, which uh, wasn't exactly uncommon in America. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, we'll be getting into this, won't we, a bit later, but he he was a Zionist. Now, I don't know if he was at this point, but yeah. he eventually became a really committed Zionist. He believed in uh, the project of Israel. But at yeah. the same time, he had quite a, uh, yeah, quite a, a negative opinion of Jews as a people. Yeah. Um, yeah, and honestly, this is uh, not that uh, uh, not that rare. Uh, also, you know, in America, even still today, mm -hmm. um, like you know, uh, uh, evangelicals here in the states are uh, very pro-Israel, but not because you know they believe in Judaism or whatever, but it's for some fucking eschatological bullshit or whatever. I think they think um, it'll trigger the apocalypse that they, if um, or the rapture, if yeah, all the Jews go live in Israel, something yep. like that. It's been yeah, a while yeah. since I read um, Left Behind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so some kind of bullshit like that. But um, <clears throat> anyway, uh, Ezra Pound, his uh, <clears throat> friend and poet, uh, started to become uh, more vehement in his defense of fascism. And Angleton, uh, I guess that became maybe a little, uh, little too on the nose for him. And he started to kind of move away from Ezra Pound uh, upon graduating from Yale. Um, and uh, in World War II, he was rejected for selective service, again, due to his recurring tuberculosis. But he was eventually recruited by Norman Pearson to attend Harvard Law School. And uh, he was uh, he did end up getting drafted into the army, and he married his girlfriend, uh, Cecily Dautremont, of the wealthy Dautremont and Congdon families. Uh, Pearson then drafted him into working for the fledgling OSS. Mm -hmm. And uh, for the listeners at home, uh, the OSS was the wartime predecessor to the uh, CIA. Yeah. Oh. There's an interesting aspect of the OSS and then the CIA is the influence of Britain over that. Yeah. And those guys at the start, like the founding fathers, by and large, guys like Angleton and Dulles, they were Atlanticists, you know, like they mm -hmm. were big admirers of Europe and they wanted like a really close relationship between certainly Western Europe and America. And so even when the OSS and then the CIA were kind of getting off the ground. It was British intelligence that they turned to, you know, for advice and guidance on how to run this thing. Yeah, the CIA was a uh, MI6 op, yes. pretty much. Yes, yes. <laughs> so, yeah, so once, um, once in the OSS for World War II, Angleton worked in X2, which was uh, counterintelligence with Pearson, and quite auspiciously with SIS officer Kim Philby. Mm-hmm. And uh, counterintelligence, as defined by uh, former uh, um, Director of Central Intelligence Richard Helms, is information gathered and activities conducted to protect against espionage, sabotage, or assassinations conducted for or on behalf of foreign powers, organizations, or persons. Uh, but in uh, practice, it was pretty much just drinking three martinis for lunch <laughs> with no food whatsoever. Hell yes. Which, you know what? Respect. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, just um, just to put a pin in something as well, because obviously Kim Philby will be coming back. Yeah. Uh, SAS is the Secret Intelligence Service. It's also called MI6. It's the British uh, version of the CIA. Um, yep. And like MI5 is like the British version of the FBI, I guess. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but it, it speaks to that, you know, connection between the British and American spooks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Kim, uh, <clears throat> Kim Philby would straight up just be like a, a stationed in Washington, kind of working uh, hand in glove with the uh, the early CIA there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, so uh, uh, Philby was both a friend and mentor to Angleton, and during the war, Angleton would work on the pro on the program Ultra, which is not to be confused with MK Ultra. Um, and this was the method by which the Allies decoded the Germans in real time. And it was in this program that Angleton became aware of the practice of doubling an agent to feed disinformation back to Berlin. Mm-hmm. He was instructed by Philby, who, again, quite auspiciously, uh, gave a lengthy presentation on doubling agents. Uh, Philby himself was seemingly working for British intelligence, but had secretly become a Soviet spy and was likely working to help the Spanish communists and anarchists in the Spanish Civil War as a doubled agent in Franco's employ. So, I, he rules. <laughs> I have a feeling, like, at this time, the number of uh, spies who must have been picking up paychecks from, like, various intelligence agencies, yeah. um, the paranoia, you know, and the the triple and quadruple crossing and the confusion and chaos that comes along with that. It is mm-hmm. no wonder that so many of them just went off the deep end, you know, as time went on. Yeah. I mean, yeah. keeping all these different lives and lies straight, you know, and remembering what you've told certain people and what you haven't just seems like more effort than it's worth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely uh, not a life I would like to live. <laughs> yeah. That's for certain. Um, but uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. But uh, in uh, episode 28 of this podcast, um, which is American Utopia Part 2, I discuss Operation Sunrise. Uh, this was the sort of a brainchild of Alan Dulles as a means of negotiating a surrender with the Germans surreptitiously in northern Italy. Uh, Angleton took part in this by negotiating with the Black Prince Junio Valerio Borghese, a quite open fascist in Italy and a standout mm-hmm. in their war effort. As the Nazis and their Italian allies aimed to retreat to Bavaria and leave a scorched earth behind, Angleton worked his new counterintelligence chops to convince Borghese to work with the Americans in demobilizing the region to prevent this last stand in Bavaria. And for his service, Angleton hid Borghese from prosecution and smuggled him into an American OSS safe house. Uh, Angleton justified this by saying the U.S. government had long-term interest in retaining his services, and he would finish his prison sentence uh, in 1949. You can see here as well, right from the very beginning, with the OSS's conduct around like escaping war criminals and fascists and Nazis and everything. Yep. They're already running their own schemes, you know, behind the, the back of the US government and, uh, you know, completely at odds in certain respects with like the Allies' objectives. Um, yep. And I think that, yeah, I think we act as if the CIA sort of went rogue, like, you know, in the 50s and the 60s and whatnot. And in fact, it was kind of coded into the DNA right from the very beginning. They saw themselves as effectively detached from the state and just there mm-hmm. to kind of intervene and shape things to their agenda, you know. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's a, a story, I think it's in uh, The Devil's Chessboard, um, where Angleton had, like, an apartment in Rome that was just, like, filled with Nazis. And he was, like, hiding them <laughs> from other members of the American government and, like, it eventually, like, gets raided, and they just find, like, three Nazis, like, hanging out in this apartment, and they're, like, you know, Angleton's uh, sort of pets in there. And, uh, you know, he's uh, pretty <laughs> instrumental in uh, getting a lot of those Nazis out of uh, out of Western Europe at the end of the war. And it's kind of shocking to see how short the prison sentences are, yeah. by and large, for all of these guys. Yeah. I mean, some of them were broken out of prison by, like, <laughs> members of the CIA. I sort of got an image in my head now of Angleton being like Ace Ventura, like hide, <laughs> hiding the Nazis from his landlord, and then <laughs> summons them. Just got Nazis coming out of the the hampers and the washing machine and the cupboards. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> not too far off, I'm I'm sure. Um, but yeah, so Angleton uh, became infatuated with counterintelligence work. Uh, he allowed his marriage to completely crumble. As he neglected his child and wife, Sicily, Angleton's wife, lost both her brothers to the war and was preparing to file for divorce when she became pregnant again and held off. Mm. Angleton would visit her in Tucson, Arizona, where they fought constantly before he returned to Italy for counterintelligence work. Uh, He was simply married to the game, like just could not be bothered whatsoever Mm -hmm. to uh, take care of his family at all. 
Yeah, that's and, something else you see replicated with all these guys. Um, the the work comes first, the, f- mm-hmm. the company comes first because the lifestyle that it affords you is just so intoxicating, you know? Yeah. How many other jobs can you just turn up hammered to yeah. and then try out some new, you know, experimental weapon that they're developing and then, you know, spend your afternoon hammered still and spying on people and, <laughs> you know, running agents and things like that. I mean, you can understand how to a certain personality type that stuff is really appealing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, even though, like, Alan Dulles fucking MK Ultra to his own son, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, like, these, like, these people are just, like, so alien to, like, I, I did, like, anything that you could conceive of as being, like, a real person. I love hearing like, the stories about um, what, what, what life was like at Langley once MK Ultra got off the ground and they started experimenting with LSD because yeah. you hear, like, stories of almost, like, hijinks and, like, japes, like, agents spiking each other with acid and sending them into a briefing you know to like deliver a talk about the progress of the korean war or something and people just tripping balls in the hallways at like 11 in the morning on a monday yeah it's fucking insane like (laughs) it was like a like office policy that you could be dosed at any time and like 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 i can't even fucking imagine like god damn that would suck so bad to be on acid at work Uh, can you imagine that though? You've just been shown slides of like the aftermath of a bombing run in Korea, and the acid is taking effect as you're looking at these images of unholy horror. I mean, yeah, yeah, <laughs> no. just like a, like a slides of like a chemical and biological warfare, and then <sighs> everything just starts melting. Jesus, <laughs> Jesus, yeah. Christ. Yeah, these these are not humans. I mean, fucking uh, what, uh, Sid Gottlieb, uh, he claims to have tripped like two hundred times, <laughs> and then like became like a fucking like psychonaut, like yoga instructor, yeah, yeah, and yeah. like got really into yogurt. Like, <laughs> like, like, oh my god, dude! I can't, oh, I can't even imagine what I mean, it must be like to be in these people's heads. So much of what they did is just abhorrent and you know morally repugnant, but they are such fascinating characters at the same time um and yeah i mean when you hear stories like that um i do have something to tell you later on and it's angleton adjacent and it sort of fits into this weird and wacky world that they constructed around themselves but i'll get to it in a bit but yeah um it's i don't know how anybody could not be fascinated by this you know yeah yeah no i mean yeah it's uh it's kind of intoxicating just just to learn about (laughs) yeah fucking like what the fuck, dude? I, I can't understand the mindset that these people are in. You've got Bill Donovan just kind of, you know, pulling guns in the middle of briefings. And you've got Angleton staring into an upturned hat while high and hammered as fuck on whiskey on yeah. a Tuesday afternoon trying to divine, like, the Soviets' ultimate agenda. Uh, yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's a story in... Um, uh, uh, David Martin's Wilderness of Mirrors, where they talk about uh, Bill Harvey, which we're, we're not really going to talk about Bill Harvey in this episode. But uh, when, like, I, I really like the contrast between Bill Harvey and James Angleton because they were both total lushes. Yeah. But uh, Angleton just got progressively skinnier and skinnier with <laughs> iller fitting suits, and Harvey just, like, got fatter and balder. Yeah. Yeah. And they eventually hide him in uh, uh, Rome because he had really pissed off some people in, uh, in America. And he was such a fucking drunkard that one day, like, there's a story of the secretaries in his office. His gun just goes off with his door closed. And the secretaries were, like, nervous to open the door because they thought he had just finally blown his brains out. (laughs) And, like, finally, when the secretary works up the coverage to open the door, he's just sitting there like his gun didn't just go off and completely hammered. (laughs) And then, like, there's stories of him just, like, falling asleep at meetings and shit like that, yeah, like slumped yeah. over his chair and shit. Mm. <clears throat> it's uh. emblematic of the kind of the, the freewheelingness of the, the period. I remember, not sorry, I know we're getting off on a bit of a tangent here, but I That's remember fine. reading accounts of how um, it was almost like you could just approach like Dulles and his inner circle while they were having a lobster lunch or something and pitch a coup to him, you know, just pitch an operation to him. And if they liked it, they'd just unlock the funding and let you go off and and do it, you know, yourself. There was so little oversight of what people were actually getting up to. And it's kind of wild, but it's just such a a strange 
strange environment and lethal at the same time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's kind of like baked in too. Uh, like, you know, with, uh, with the way that the operations worked, it was uh, sort of necessary that not everybody know yeah. everything. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so it was like, yeah, you want to coup, uh, you want to coup Guatemala? Sure. Here's mm-hmm. here's Definitely. a few million dollars. Go <laughs> uh, knock yourself out, man. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, and uh, you know, Angleton really was uh, he was totally okay with working with Nazis as well, and he kept a number of them, as I said, in a safe house after the war. One of which was this like absolute freak, Eugen Dolman, who was like an Italophile, uh, who was like openly openly gay. And he absolutely abhorred anybody overweight, like was just like dripped with venom if he was around anybody with like a bit of a gut, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And uh, eventually this guy would get cut off from the CIA. So he was like a triple agent and was just like passing obviously forged documents as real just to just to get a little bit of money to keep keep his lifestyle going in uh, (laughs) uh, Italy. Kind of reminds me of uh, if you ever seen the movie, um, the talented Mr. Ripley. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> no yeah all these guys fancied themselves as playboys or like angleton bohemians almost like mm-hmm. artistic refined sophisticated spooks it's, it's yeah it's tragic in a strange way but yeah mm-hmm. yeah i mean yeah there, there's honestly like obviously like he was like a horrendous person and like yeah. responsible for like some really like terrible and, and like yeah. just the immiseration and whatnot but like there's also something like really sad <laughs> about james angleton yeah. I, you know what I mean? I mean, these like, guys, like, their whole business was death, really. And it was yeah. death on behalf of, like, what would come to be called corporate America, you know, the like the imperial core. That is mm-hmm. what the CIA's ultimate purpose is. Yeah. Um, and it's to, you know, smash and destroy any opposition to that agenda. And at yeah, the same it, it, time, he's there attending poetry readings and buying modernist art, you know, as, as yeah. though that somehow this sophistication he's got in one area of his life negates what he does for a living. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the CIA really is like the armed wing of wall street. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Who was it? Who called it? Um, capitalism's invisible army or something. I'm not sure. I don't know who said that, but, um, that sums it up pretty well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and th- yeah, this is one of my favorite Angleton stories. So after he had stayed on in Italy, uh, which he was a young man at this time, he was already, like, incredibly paranoid. And uh, the veteran OSS man in Italy, Max Corvo, claimed that Angleton started each day by going through his office for one to one and a half hours looking for bugs. <laughs> <laughs> like, like it's, I, oh my god, man. Like, I, I can just picture, like, you know, he's in there in his ill-fitting suit, probably completely hungover, uh, yep. reeking of whiskey. And just mumbling to himself as he shuffles around his office, you know, picking up the lamp and, <laughs> you know what I mean, like pulling out the light bulbs and trying to just like tracing all of the wall and everything like that. Just, I mean, and th- this is when he's like in his 20s. He's already this bad. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, so his friend, Kim Philby, as we said before, was a Soviet agent. And uh, in 1945... He came dangerously close to being found out when uh, the Soviet agent Konstantin Volkov attempted to defect, um, offering the identities of Soviet double agents in Britain. Uh, and Philby was likely one of the names, but he was able to actually, through back channels, get Volkov a- apprehended by the KGB. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and I, I like to point this out because, again, you have Angleton going through his office for an hour and an hour and a half every single day looking for bugs, and he's just fucking offering the entire goddamn uh company to kim philby at lunch you know what i mean <laughs> i mean it so much of it feels like acting out the part of a really dogged spook you know um, and yeah. because i again we'll probably bring this quote back but um who the hell was it who said um you would be forgiven for thinking that Angleton and a lot of those guys were themselves double agents because yep. the sheer incompetence and the amount of damage that they did <laughs> yeah. um, to the thing they were supposed to be protecting. Sometimes there's no other way to explain it other than you know the suspicion that maybe they were on the payroll as well, you know, like of the KGB or whatever. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know there there is you know there are people that definitely theorize that Angleton was a was a double agent. Mm-hmm. I personally don't buy it. I think he was. No, just... I don't buy it. Yeah, I think he was just a drunken man. Yeah, but, <laughs> extremely uh, drunk. 
Yeah, uh, yeah. It, it, like, basically everything can just be uh, described by the fact that he was fucking multiple drinks deep with no food in his system by, like, one thirty every day. Forever you know in mean? his bag, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but, yeah, so then uh, uh, in 1947, the, uh, the CIA would be created, uh, and Angleton would join it. And this was after President Truman's National Security Act. Which created, like, fucking, I, I don't even know, five or so different intelligence agencies for no reason. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, and, you know, this was intended to prosecute the Cold War. So, Angleton uh, returned to Washington to help start the CIA and found himself working on Italian politics even back at home. Uh, he was quickly sent back to Italy to help stop the Communist Party of Italy from coming to power. And uh, if you want to hear more about that, I talk about that soft coup in Italy in 1948 during... Uh, Episode 40, American Utopia 3, The Italian Job. So, uh, by 1949, the Cold War was in full effect, and the Western powers were hell-bent on rolling back communism in the countries in Europe it had taken hold since World War II. Uh, with America needing to expand its intelligence capabilities, Washington turned to London, and the two countries set about creating a global intelligence system. And James Angleton and his old wartime friend, Kim Philby, were two of the key players in creating the system. I mean, we say it reflects badly on James Angleton, but I'm, nobody comes out of this looking particularly skilled or capable. The fact that yeah. Kim Philby just keeps rising higher and higher. Becoming... Yeah, and then, like, even when he's starting to get found out, nobody believes it, really, at first. And, like, they don't even arrest him. Like, they leave him alone. I think it's in, like, Lebanon or something like that. Once, once he's kind of confessed a little bit, they say that uh, he gives a moderate confession. They just leave him alone. Yep. And uh, and uh, the guy that he confesses to goes back to England to figure out what they should do with him. And obviously, Kim Philby's just like, well, I guess it's time to go to Moscow. But I mean, just like, I, I think he I, says something quite deep. I will try and articulate this at some point properly in this episode. But the fact that they knew, but they, they didn't want to know that he was yeah. a, a spy. I think that says quite a lot about, you know the sincerity behind a lot of them in this uh, this Cold War, anti-communist sort of effort. Um, if they're a friend of yours, then we'll, go- we'll make every effort to look the other way until we cannot ignore it anymore. Yeah, and then even then we'll give you the... We'll, we'll let you run down the alley and get out. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah it's, uh, I don't know. It's, <laughs> it's wild. But, um, you know, so before Philby's found out, uh, both he and Angleton settled in Washington, and they would start a, a career-long sort of friendly rivalry while routinely enjoying lunches together at a, a swanky Washington restaurant called Harvey's. And, uh, yeah, again, Angleton would just uh, give up the entire house to, to mm-hmm. Philby during these meetings. You know, he, like, literally would just tell Philby, like, everything about <laughs> what he was doing. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, Philby had some ulterior motives in the rivalry. And I, I always do... I. I get the feeling that he was friends with Angleton mm-hmm. like yeah. that he actually that he did you know in some way like him but he was still just like hey man if he's gonna tell me <laughs> I'll use it <laughs> and the crazy thing with Philby too is that, like he was a communist when he was younger like he was a member of the communist party uh, when he was like a teenager and shit so yeah. it's like like what you said about looking the other way it's like it's not like he was like ever secret about his leftist sympathies he he claimed to a uh expunge them uh i think in like his 20s or maybe like early 30s or something like that and everybody mm-hmm. was just like yep we believe you <laughs> i think it speaks to the the strength of ruling class solidarity you know yeah um they just kept promoting this guy because he was one of them first yeah, of all good old boy yeah 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 and um it was uh during this time as the man in washington that the soviets would use philby to monitor the americans uncovering of the soviet spy ring within the states and this included klaus fuchs the Rosenbergs, and naturally the methods by which the Soviets had acquired uh, Manhattan Project research into the atomic bomb. Mm-hmm. And uh, just as a side note, I thought this was funny. Philby's father's name was fucking St. John Philby. <laughs> That's <laughs> which, an Austin Powers-ass name, is that? Yeah, yeah. And uh, it, it doesn't quite beat out McGeorge Bundy for me, uh, <laughs> for, for my favorite spook name of this time, um, which is just like such a quintessential like mid-century american name yeah george uh but saint john is definitely up there i i I do like that and uh you know now we know that uh kim philby along with his longtime friend guy burgess uh and another british spook named donald mclean 
were all Soviet spies that had heavily, uh, heavily infiltrated MI6 and interned with CIA. And I think it was Guy Burgess who was just this, like, drunken lush, who was just, like, constantly, like, spilling the beans, kind of. <laughs> and, like, uh, uh, Kim Philby always had to try to, like, make excuses for him. <laughs> How many people have we introduced so far to this story? And we've said, you know, at the start, they were heavy drinkers. They were just a complete <laughs> drunken lush. Yeah, it's most of them at this point. <laughs> yeah, you might be sensing a theme at home, dear listeners. Uh, spooks like to drink. Um, but yeah, so uh, uh, McLean had been suspected of spying and so was due to be arrested, and Philby tipped him off, having been a Soviet spy since before World War II, as we mentioned. Now, Burgess, uh, you know, again, this uh, drunken moron, also got spooked, and he fled with McLean. And uh, this tipped uh, off London and Washington that Philby was also a mole, because, again, Philby was always seen with this guy, Guy Burgess, and nobody ever really knew why. They were like, this dude's like a drunken moron who just likes, like, I think there's, there's like, a, a story of him fucking making, like, a lewd caricature, like, painting somebody's wife uh, uh, <laughs> in Washington, like, just, like a, like, a horrendous painting and like kim philby had to like apologize for him and everything and people were just like why is he fucking hanging around with this moron <laughs> and then when he yeah and then when he fle flees to the soviet union it was kind of like oh it's because <laughs> the guy knew that philby was also a mole <laughs> and now uh angleton though still seemed clueless and he refused to believe it at first since they were such good friends and like i, I think there's maybe some uh uh i don't know some some uh the fact that he knows that he's basically been spilling everything to mm -hmm. Philby, I'm sure, maybe uh, painted his uh, uh, willingness to believe that Philby was a uh, was a double agent. Well, I mean, even at this point, he's built this self-image. You know, not to play armchair psychiatrist or anything, but he's built yeah. this self-image as the spider at the center of the web. You know, the grand mm -hmm. puppet master who knows all the secrets, knows where all the bodies are buried, and yep. he's had his pants completely pulled down here. And yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think that the Cambridge Five situation was a, a major accelerant for Angleton's, you know, eventual sort of paranoid spiral that he got yep. into. Um, I, I'm sure lots of people think that, actually. But I'm just it, it does seem that it's at this point where it becomes terminal. Does that descent into just all out raving? madness <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely yeah it, it is really the philby the philby uh situation that just sends angleton into this yeah, just a tailspin mm -hmm. um you know and uh he was also uh he was involved with some mk ultra projects uh including the predecessor of uh, bluebird and artichoke programs this is angleton um he helped recruit truth drug narcotics agent george white and White and Angleton even took acid together once and took a taxi to Chinatown to get food. But apparently they just laughed the entire time and didn't eat anything, which I'm sure wasn't that uh, uncommon for Angleton. And uh, it's uh, definitely reminiscent of some experiences that I uh, definitely have not had with acid. So. <laughs> There's probably very few people that it would be more dangerous to give acid to than someone like James Angleton, you know, given like the yeah. natural paranoia and the amount of power and influence he has, things start to make a lot of sense when you think about the cocktail combinations that he was on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure uh, tripping on acid just uh, really fucking sent that shit into the stratosphere, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, I can't even imagine what it must have been like to be in his head on acid. <laughs> God.
but yeah, so, uh, uh, you know, it's uh, moving on to the 50s. You know, the CIA saw, um, under Alan Dulles, uh, some early victories in Guatemala and Iran, but also some embarrassing defeats at the hands of the KGB in Poland. And um, again, with, you know, this uncovering of uh, Soviet agents in the West that were able to get out, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And um, so it was at this point that Angleton stepped in to create a robust counterintelligence wing. Uh, he would Angleton would call KGB penetration into the West a wilderness of mirrors, which uh, uh, evokes the the poem I opened this episode with. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically, in this, his uh, idea was: the more reliable one was, the more likely they were KGB. Yeah. And uh, I want to read from um, uh, Jefferson Morley's "The Ghost" here. Um, in December 1954, the orders were issued, and Angleton became chief of the new counterintelligence staff. He was now, in the words of one CIA watcher, a ghost in the system, wired into the center of a panopticon rendered in paperwork. He operated ahead of the conventional intel process, monitored all internal communications, and used a vast network extending far outside the official CIA to keep tabs on the entire intelligence establishment. From raw signals intelligence to special operations, Angleton was an invisible supervisor. It's quite a... Well, it's quite the description. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> yeah, so Angleton, uh, he was able to acquire a copy of Khrushchev's secret speech, uh, which was, uh, you know, denouncing Stalinism at the 20th Congress of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. And this was a uh, it was a big get for him. Um, and uh, uh, he was also assisted by the Mossad in Israel for this. And that sort of um, uh, leads into uh, he would have a very close relationship yeah. with Israel in general and the Mossad going forward. Yeah. Now, Angleton's close friend from those days in the 60s was Cord Meyer, another Yale graduate. He had a vision for world government, but eventually worked for the CIA to push their narrative, including covertly funding labor unions, newspapers, magazines, TV stations, and Hollywood films. And uh, I think this is like uh, sort of interesting because it kind of uh, highlights you know, the, this sort of weird nature of the CIA, where the CIA is obviously a reactionary organization. Um, as we said before, it's kind of like the armed wing of Wall Street. Mm-hmm. But there's also these, uh, there's this like weird sort of like liberal progressivism undercurrent to some of it too. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's sort of used to uh, like liberal idealism. It's sort of used to like uh, launder the the war hawkishness. And so you see, like obviously, labor unions would be anathema to the the entire uh, purpose of the CIA, but they fund them. And, you know, again, like certain newspapers, the magazines, Hollywood films and all this stuff where like you kind of just like flood the fucking airwaves. Yeah. And like get your hand into everything. You know what I mean? I think it's a very good PR strategy as well, because the CIA has always seen itself as very refined and urban and sophisticated. And the FBI is seen as kind of like the hicks, you know, uh, just the, the thugs, basically. So I'm thinking now of when McCarthy was uh, running the the witch hunt, you know, the anti-communist witch hunt. Alan Dulles, of all people, was the one who stepped up to him and said, fuck off, you know, when... Can we swear on this show, by the way? Oh, Uh, yeah. Yeah, so (laughs) Alan Dulles is the one who stepped to him and said, fuck off, when um, McCarthy was demanding to have access, you know, to CIA personnel files and whatnot. And that won him a lot of prestige in liberal circles. It won Alan Dulles a lot of prestige, which is why people like Cord Mayer were attracted to it as an institution because, yeah, it is reactionary and it's ardently pro-capitalist and anti-communist, but it can sell itself to a certain type of liberal um, Mm -hmm. as a force for good, you know. And this continues right on up to the present day man i mean we all we hear how many times do you hear it where it's like yeah they did some bad things but that was then you know now yeah oh yeah all the time now we yeah, celebrate yeah. pride month you know what what's not to love it's it's just been a, a constant of the cia's history it's it's very canny because if people didn't fall for it you know they wouldn't bother doing it um it definitely wins them support yeah i mean yeah they're, they're uh uh, yeah, um, yeah, they they definitely uh, uh, try to uh, 
recruit these liberal idealists really again to to launder the image you know what i mean yeah and like even certain things like the uh, the entire concept of human rights that's a cia thing you know what i mean yeah like human rights watch is a cia front and like again so it's like this whole i mean like the cia is responsible for i mean more miseration than i think any other organization in the entire uh you know the history of the world since the 20th century I mean, like, there's a case to be made when, if you count, you know, Operation Condor and Vietnam mm-hmm. and the bombings in Laos and Cambodia and the Indonesian genocide, that the CIA has, like, killed dozens of millions of people. Yeah. And then, but, like, you know, make this whole uh, stink again about, like, human rights, you know, the, the Human Rights Watch, all this kind of thing, you know, it's very much a... Yeah, just trying to launder the the bloody history of the organization through these sort of liberal idealist concepts. Yeah. But there's nobody who cares less about human rights than the fucking CIA. Yeah, I mean, Trump was a gift to them in a lot of ways because um, it it gives liberals permission, you know, to embrace the security state. If the CIA composes one of the last lines of defense between (laughs) democracy and MAGA tyranny Mm -hmm. you know we're we're in a very strange place and you see it there's a lot there's a certain type of liberal that wants to believe that these institutions are there to really protect us and defend us i say it was like i'm an american but you know what i mean um i mean uk i mean the cia also uh uh protects the interests of london too you know hey how about this for a hot take the cia is british always was um (laughs) but yeah i mean People, if enough people want to believe in the sanctity and you know the um, the greatness of these institutions like the CIA or even the FBI, and so all they're looking for is permission. So if if an Alan Dulles can stand down um, Joe McCarthy, you know, if yep. we can get enough pictures of happy Iraqis dancing on the <laughs> the fallen statue of Saddam Hussein, you know, yep. it gives us permission to say well, the CIA is not all bad, you know, and the bad stuff mm-hmm. it did do, like we said, happened years ago. It doesn't happen now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, Abu Ghraib never happened. Yeah. yeah, you don't need to worry about that. Um, yeah, no, it's a... Uh, and it, uh, I mean, the jerk of the uh, the enhanced interrogation uh, yeah. techniques is that is MK Ultra. They just call it something different. It never stopped, you know, like the yeah. that torture, the waterboarding, the sensory deprivation and trying to drive these people insane while they're being held in tiny yeah. cells mk ultra all the way through yeah i mean that they are that's exactly how mk ultra started mm-hmm. was just uh in interrogations and then like you can see again with the abu Ghraib, all that shit that's like the same shit that we were doing in chile yep under the pinochet dictatorship you know what i mean you know, it, it, like you, if you read like the stories of shit like Colonia Dignidad and whatever, I mean, it's the same shit. Like, <laughs> like you see the same the same sort of uh, sensory deprivations and all that kind of stuff. You know what I mean? I mean, since we um, brought up Colonia you- Dignidad, um, MK Ultra itself is based in large part on research that the Nazis did in the concentration camps. Yeah. So there's your liberal, enlightened, progressive values for you. You know, that's the institution yeah. that these people are saying are going to protect us from. <laughs> terrorism or whatever it might be donald trump yeah 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 so uh, uh to, to your point before yeah the you know obama and trump really was like if you look at it that's that was those two uh presidencies are really what got liberals on board with the patriot act yeah you know what i mean yeah. um but yeah so um uh so angleton was also instrumental in the creation of cointelpro and uh, would you like to give our listeners kind of a rundown of what COINTELPRO was, just like a quick one? Yeah, I this gets at something that I've been having this uh, running discussion with a few people about strategy of tension operations mm-hmm. and what they are. And I'm probably going yep. to do a, a long episode about it um, at some point. COINTELPRO is essentially a strategy of tension operation. Um, it was the FBI's counterintelligence program. It ran from, I believe it ran from 1956 to 1971. And the whole point of it was to um, <clears throat> discredit, disrupt, and destroy organizations that they considered to be subversive inside the um, US. You know. 
And whenever yeah. intelligence or security agencies start talking about subversion, um, they need a definition of what that is. And that's when things start getting scary. You know, so the civil rights movement is subversive. Uh, yeah. You know, the feminists are subversive. The hippies are subversive. The new left is subversive. So effectively, particularly after like the mid 60s, when uh, the counterculture really became a kind of vibrant, viable alternative to like mainstream society for a brief window of time. Pro uh, agents essentially ran a kind of a secret war, you know, up and down mm-hmm. the West Coast in particular of America. Um, they would infiltrate, you know, uh, activist organizations or whatnot. And obviously with the Black Panthers, there's kind of, I, w- I think there's a fair argument to be made that they basically implemented a rolling program of executions and assassinations of black civil rights leaders, you know. Um, yeah. And that's Cointel Pro, but it, it extended to other stuff as well. I mean, there were unauthorized wiretapping, uh, mail tampering, um, you know, intimidation, like campaigns of uh, harassment as well, you know. So famously, Martin Luther King was blackmailed by the FBI uh, because of affairs that he had. Uh, he, he received letters advising him to kill himself if he didn't want to see his reputation publicly destroyed. I think it's fair to say at this point that the assassination of Martin Luther King was probably, um, yeah, I, I'm not going to say probably, it was state-sanctioned, you know. And I, oh, absolutely, And yeah. part of uh, Pro as well to boot. Um, and I mean, the, it's interesting because it almost looks a bit like Gladio, you know, when viewed from a certain perspective, um, which is the stay behind networks that were set up in Europe. Um, And they, they used like the Ku Klux Klan, they used like really radical far right militias like the Minutemen uh, to, yeah, to conduct a war, an invisible war against the hippies, against the new left, against the radicals. Um, Pretty dark time, man. And the CIA, were connected to it you know obviously in their charter they're not supposed to operate inside u.s territory (laughs) but obviously there's all all kinds of ways around that and one of the ways that they had of you know sidestepping that rule was they would just turn police departments into cia fronts essentially Uh, if you've read if you read chaos by tom o'neill it's hard to shake the sense that the lapd was basically a cia field office you know um and all that follows from that is violence terror campaigns harassment intimidation and eventually yeah it, it was effective was commental pro i mean it, it basically destroyed, i mean it was massively effective yeah, it, it destroyed the organized left essentially in america um and the thing about i mean i'm getting off again on a bit of a tangent but the thing about oh, programs like this it's happened here in britain as well when thatcher uh, sent the dogs after like the trade unions in the 80s we never seem to learn from that and then when another movement arrives you know like the insurrect the uprising that you had in 2020 in america over george yep. floyd the Corbyn movement over here if you bring this stuff up and you want to know what the plan is for dealing with this shit nine times out of ten people will say oh, i happened years ago that sort of thing doesn't happen anymore and then mm-hmm. here we are now 2023 and we're thinking when we got our asses handed to us again, you know. Um. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, it's funny. I think, um, I think you had sent this maybe like a year or two ago or something like that in your Patreon uh, as an email, but it was uh, an excerpt from like a field a field manual yes, uh, by yes. uh, intelligence on how to disrupt leftist organizations. And, uh, you know, just uh, certain things like, um, you know, uh, when, when you're in some kind of meeting, always uh, bring up whether or not, uh, the meeting has the authority to even be discussing this or uh, all that kind of shit, you know what I mean? Or maybe we should table this for another time. Yeah. Uh, like all of these like disruptive tactics. And one of, you know, if you've ever been involved in any sort of uh, leftist meeting, you'll you'll recognize that these things still happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's sort of like this like self-replicating uh, like virus that you can put into it. Where, like, you only kind of have to do it once. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then, like, once that's in the milieu, 
of discussions like you know i mean like sometimes like it's the reason it's effective is because it might seem like oh oh you know what i mean such and such person there they don't have the right identity uh to discuss a situation and for like a certain type of people you know people that don't really think of things on in basis of class but rather you know subdivide people by other ways that seems like a you know like a totally reasonable thing you know what i mean and so like when, once you introduce this type of thinking it sort of self-replicates you know? Yeah, um, I forgot to mention as well that the CIA were, well, Angleton was overseeing it, in fact. They were running Operation Chaos, sort of in parallel yeah. by the late 60s with COINTELPRO. So there was a lot of overlap there. You know, they were sending each other tips, learning from each other, you know, what worked, what didn't work. And to, to your point, poisoning the soil is the most effective way to ensure that yeah you can by and large it can be a one and done thing you don't have to spend the next 30 years assassinating you know black panthers or assassinating like new left leaders you just have to you know kill off the ones that are posing the most kind of existential risk at that point the most influential and then you poison the soil so then yeah when the next movement comes along they've been it's been so thoroughly infiltrated as a culture that Mm -hmm. This this is like a kind of byproduct of it is that these these things then just automatically self destruct after a bit you know and you you saw it happen so graphically in 2020 mm-hmm. with those I mean I'm living in Britain just watching feeds you know of these protests and you could see over the summer all of this stuff was coming back and it was happening again you know but this time mm-hmm. they had more Instagram influencers hijacking protests and stuff like that you know the the hired actors and. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it was real. Yeah, the hired actors stuff. shit was crazy too, because like, you know, like there were people that went like viral, uh, some kind of like new Black Panther organization. Yes. And then people found their Instagram accounts and they were fucking paid actors. <laughs> and it was just like, dude, what the fuck, bro? Uh, <laughs> like, you have to dude, laugh while you'll just was... you'll just melt into a depressed puddle. Yeah, it's yeah, it's no good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, just looking back on twenty twenty, what a fucking yeah, insane year. That's crazy. That was a. It was fucking wild. But um, anyway, yeah, so that's COINTELPRO. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Chaos will yeah, also so- become um, important, maybe not for this episode, but certainly for the story of the CIA, because it was things like that that showed that the CIA had effectively, as we said earlier, it's detached itself from the state at this point. It's, it's issuing its own policy. It's running its own programs, and it doesn't care about congressional oversight or what yep. the you know the voting public has to say about any of it is accountable only to itself and obviously to its friends in wall street yeah yeah absolutely yeah and uh, i i would uh, i would recommend uh, uh my listeners um if you want to hear more about that that's basically matt's uh uh angle for for many many episodes <laughs> Uh, looking at uh, uh, America, sort of uh, post-war America. So uh, if you if you want to listen or learn any more about any of that, there's uh, a lot of really great stuff at Ghost Stories for the End of the World for that. So I would uh, recommend everybody listen to that to learn more about chaos and uh, uh, just the entire new left and how completely spooked up it was and just kneecapped uh, in the womb, basically. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so anyway... Uh, you know, so Angleton was sort of instrumental in uh, sort of like at, at least the, like the CIA li- liaison to uh, COINTELPRO mm-hmm. and as uh, uh, sort of like a, um, a parallel program, uh, I guess somewhat in, uh, related. He uh, he was the progenitor of HT Lingual, which was this. It's a very Angleton uh, op because you just don't see how it's worth the fucking time. Yeah. Or energy spent to it. And Lingual was uh, this program of opening up, uh, like, letters from and to the Soviet Union with Americans uh, and, you know, reading them and trying to figure out who's an agent and who isn't from, you know, somebody writing their babka back in fucking Sochi or whatever. Um, and, yeah, over, over its lifespan, something like 200,000 letters were illegally opened, read, and then resealed and sent on their way. And uh, basically nothing of value (laughs) or actionable was uh, uh, discovered from this. And it also became basically Angleton's downfall. Mm -hmm. Oh, there's something else as well that's probably worth (coughs) pointing out, which is nothing of value for the world, really. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in terms of um, state surveillance and security and whatnot, the CIA and FBI during this time, they collaborated on a joint 
database project called Hydra. It was like mm -hmm. so using computers to list uh, tens of thousands of names of people that they deem to be subversives, you know. And this um, would effectively become the main core database. It was kind of an, uh, a forerunner of that. The main core database was the, um, I think it was developed in the late 70s and then going into the 80s. Oliver North was overseeing much of this. And it was the same thing yep. there, you know, in the event of a civil emergency, you know, say America was invaded or there was a, a revolution kicked off. They had a yep. list of names ready to go of people that they had to get to and round up and lock away, you know, before they could uh, collaborate with the enemy or help lead the insurrection or whatever it might be. Um, yeah. And that came back, you know, during the, the Bush administration, the Patriot Act years. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> um, but yeah, and then uh, in uh, late 1959, uh, Pyotr Popov was exposed as a CIA mole within the KGB. And Angleton became convinced... Uh, that he was discovered by a KGB mole within the CIA. Why was he convinced of this? Just was. Uh, part of this reasoning was uh, 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 from the Michael Golnievsky affair. Now, Golnievsky was a triple agent for the Polish, Soviets, and Americans who had given good, actionable intelligence to the, to the CIA, but would come back under the sway of the KGB. Angleton long had suspected him as a mole, and his suspicions were not entirely confirmed, but somewhat by the realization that he was working as a triple agent. Mm. And now this is where we get into uh, Angleton getting lost in the South. <laughs> uh, this is where he really just completely fucking goes off the deep end. Oh, 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 